When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Chocolates are sweet, but they don't last long. Flowers are pretty, and then they're gone. So this Mother's Day, why not give your mum the gift that keeps on giving with Ancestry DNA? Ancestry DNA is on sale now for $99, a saving of $30. Ancestry DNA won't just tell your mum where her ancestors are from, it can also pinpoint the specific regions within those countries, connecting mum to the places where her story started. Ancestry DNA lets us look back across centuries to see where her family lived and where they moved. Combined with Ancestry's massive database of official records, this can open up fascinating migration stories. Who knows? Give your mum Ancestry DNA this Mother's Day and she might even discover living relatives. I know it's possible because it happened for me. Ancestry DNA is safe, easy to use and completely private. When your mum gets the kit, she just sends back a small saliva sample using the prepaid postal box provided. In a few weeks, she'll receive an email with the link to her results. From there, your mother has control of the data and how she uses it. There could be more to your mum's story. Piece it together with Ancestry DNA, now on sale. Terms apply. It's a midwinter's day in 1988 and a woman in her early 50s stands at a counter in the Grace Brothers department store at Hornsby on Sydney's North Shore. She's filling out a form so she can exchange some goods and handing it over, the sales assistant remarks that she has the same name as a famous movie actress. The woman smiles, simply says, oh really? and leaves it at that. Thing is, she is that actress. For a time there, she was one of Australia's only Hollywood film stars. Before that, right here in Sydney, she was a model so beautiful that she was known as The Face. Now, more than 30 years later, time and ill health having done their worst, she's only recognisable by the name that an American movie studio bestowed on her. Leaving the store, she returns to her home in nearby Warrawee and settles herself with two Valiums. Yet, once a media darling, always a media darling. And so the woman tells her Grace Brothers story as an amusing anecdote to a Sydney Morning Herald writer who recounts it in his gossip column on the 7th of August. While they talk, she also tells him about the book she's writing, which combines two of her fascinations, astrology and mass murder, to analyse the likes of Ted Bundy, Charles Manson and Yorkshire Ripper Peter Sutcliffe by the light of their star signs. But it's a book that she will never finish, and her chat with the columnist is the last interview she'll ever give. I'm Michael Adams and this is Forgotten Australia Side Note 
where I explore people and stories I came across while researching other episodes. These days, we're used to Australian women rising to the top in Hollywood. Jackie Weaver, Judy Davis, Kate Blanchett, Nicole Kidman, Naomi Watts, Margot Robbie, Rachel Griffiths, Tony Collette, and they're just the familiar names who've won or been nominated for Academy Awards. Then there's Isla Fisher, Rose Byrne, Emily Browning, Abby Cornish, Rachel Taylor. Well, you get the idea. But Right in the middle of the 20th century, Australian women didn't appear in Hollywood films at all. Our early silent stars, people like Louise Lovely, Annette Kellerman and Edith Bennett, were long retired. Mae Robson, our first ever Oscar nominee, had died in 1942. Talkie hopefuls from the 1930s and 1940s Women like Mary Maguire, Margaret Viner and Janet Johnson had burned brightly, but briefly. Then, in 1955, an Australian model with real acting talent set out for Hollywood and, quick as a flash, became famous under the name Victoria Shaw. But Victoria Shaw started life as Jeanette Elphick on the 25th of May 1935 in Sydney, the third of five surviving children born to her father Francis and mother Minetta. When the Second World War came, Minetta and the children moved to a sheep station, while Francis enlisted, attained the rank of captain and had charge of the army health system in eastern Australia. Growing up, Jeanette, like most girls her age, loved going to the pictures and acting out scenes at home. She wrote to her favourite Hollywood stars, asking for autographed photos, and when they came, she kept them in her scrapbook. After the war ended, the Elphick family returned to Sydney and lived in Croydon. Jeanette learned how to be a proper young lady at Catholic Convent School in Five Dock and after getting her intermediate certificate at age 15, she left school and tried sales and office jobs, but she didn't like them. So in early 1951, Jeanette decided to take advantage of what was obvious to anyone with eyes, and that was she was drop-dead gorgeous. Accompanied by her parents, Jeanette went to see June Daly Watkins, Australia's most successful model, who just opened her own modelling school and agency. In her autobiography, The Secrets Behind My Smile, June recalled, quote, I was struck by her exquisite facial features, up-tilted nose and perfectly proportioned body. After completing the modelling course, Jeanette was immediately in huge demand to do fashion parades, newspaper and magazine ads and photo shoots. She was soon earning 13 or 14 pounds a week, which was about 50% more than the average male wage and pretty good for a girl who just turned 16. By the end of October 1951, after working for just four months, Jeanette won the title Model of the Year and a few months later she was in a swimsuit on the cover of Pix magazine. 
Inside that issue, Jeanette was the star of a four-page photographic feature about Australian modelling and what it took to make it through June Dully Watkins' school. Using her face as an example, Pix listed the 10 facial features that make models photogenic from, quote, high broad forehead and eyes lightly almond in corners to, quote, reasonably long neck and straight nose with tilt at end, nostrils not over large. Jeanette told Pix that when not modelling, she liked to dance the jitterbug, play tennis, go surfing and read lush romances and wild cowboy stories. The modelling work kept rolling in and Jeanette did ads for shampoo, for chocolate and at the end of 1951, she and fellow June Daly Watkins model Shirley Bajer, whose story you can hear in The Model and the Murder Case, were widely seen in a promo photo for Ford's new sedan, The Consul. These days, model-turned-actress is a common hyphenate, yet in early 1950s Australia, making such a transition bordered on impossible. Jeanette Elphick most definitely didn't have a face for radio. The theatre was dominated by visiting international companies, and television, well, that was still five years from reaching our shores and our living rooms. As for the local film industry, it was as dead as the proverbial doornail. But Australian actor Chips Rafferty and his mate, writer-director Lee Robinson, were determined to resurrect homegrown movie production. Their first film was going to be The Phantom Stockman, which was about a mysterious outback bloke hunting down a villain who'd murdered one of his old mates. The leading female role was the dead man's daughter, and Lee Robinson wanted a girl who'd look good on camera. So he phoned up June Daly Watkins and asked for her most beautiful model. He got Jeanette Elphick. Robinson was knocked out, and 35 years later would recall, quote, She was the best-looking girl I've seen in my life. She was beautiful on the inside too. There was a purity to her beauty. And she wasn't a bad actor. She'd get better with the years. In mid-1952, Jeanette, Lee Robinson and Chips Rafferty, along with other cast and crew, spent six weeks shooting on location about 15 miles out of Alice Springs. It was tough going, with them riding horses to the chute each morning to start work by 8.30, filming until it got dark, and then riding back to base before starting all over again. When it was released in June 1953, The Phantom Stockman was received politely, with Australian audiences amused that Chips Rafferty was wielding six-shooters from holsters just like an American cowboy. But Chips was canny. He was an internationally famous Australian, and his presence in a Aussie Western meant he'd been able to pre-sell the movie to America as Return of the Plainsman and to Britain as Cattle Station, more than doubling his production budget of £10,000 before his movie was even released. I've yet to see The Phantom Stockman, but I've watched some clips that are available on the National Film and Sound Archives website. 
The camera loved Jeanette Elphick, and for a debut performance, she seems to have done pretty well, delivering her lines with emotion, confidence, and conviction. While The Phantom Stockman made money and Jeanette showed acting talent, the Australian film industry remained close to comatose, so she continued to be best known as a model. It was even sometimes dangerous work, with her later telling an interviewer that on one job her plane crashed into a farmer's field, and on another, in New Zealand, the aircraft she was in was struck by lightning and a piece of the fuselage was ripped away, leading to a very tense time until the pilot got them all safely to the airport. Though young, Jeanette Elphick was also good for a quote when it came to issues relating to women and modelling. In October 1953, an English bishop made headlines with sermons claiming that models made the minds of young boys into hives of indecency. He said, quote, The type of girl or woman too often photographed in so-called daring dresses or glamorous flimsies isn't contributing to the gaiety of life. In the pages of the Sun newspaper, Jeanette hit back with wit and wisdom. Quote, it would be a dull old world if we all went around looking like washerwomen. I think the bishop is probably confusing glamour with sex. A girl can be glamorous and nice too. If a man is going to have bad thoughts about a girl just because she is wearing a flimsy dress, he will have bad thoughts about her whatever she is wearing. In April 1955, Hollywood didn't come knocking for Jeanette Elphick. It came cracking jokes in the form of Bob Hope on his first Australian tour. The veteran funny man and his people wanted pretty girls for his show, and so June Daly Watkins got another phone call asking for the best of her bells. Soon, Jeanette met and worked with Bob Hope, and he, not surprisingly, took a shine to her, telling her, quote, If you ever get to Hollywood, call my agent and tell him I recommend you. That's exactly what Jeanette decided to do. But her plan wasn't to make it big on the big screen in America. She had a more strategic goal and that was to learn how to be a small-screen performer and personality in anticipation of television arriving in Australia. Coming back home, she figured, she'd have the skills and experience to get her own TV show. On the 14th of July, 1955, as recorded in Ancestry.com.au's Passenger Manifests, Jeanette flew Pan-American from Sydney to Honolulu and then on to Los Angeles. There was no one to meet her on Friday the 15th because, well, apart from Bob Hope and his press agent Mac Miller, Jeanette didn't know anyone in the City of Angels. Worse the airline had lost her luggage, and so she stepped into the middle of the Californian summer wearing the only woolen dress she had with her. Fortunately, she'd befriended an American man on the plane, and he invited her to have dinner with him and a married couple who were friends of his. Jeanette accepted and borrowed some of the wife's clothes, which she wore over the weekend. 
In typical fashion, Jeanette later joked that the woman's dresses were two sizes too small, meaning that for her first few days in America, she was getting around in the tightest skirts in Hollywood. On Monday, Jeanette called Mac Miller, and the following day, he introduced her to Bob Hope's agent, Louis Scher, who was knocked out and got the ball rolling with the studios. Next, Jeanette met with Columbia. They liked her a lot. Less than two weeks after that meeting, the Los Angeles Times on the 30th of July 1955 reported, quote, Mysterious young lady from Australia named Janet is being heralded as a possibility for the second wife of Eddie Duchin in The Eddie Duchin Story. The Eddie Duchin Story was a prestige production shot in Cinemascope and Technicolor about the life and times of the tragic 1930s and 1940s band leader. Headlined by Tyrone Power and Kim Novak, it was already filming in New York studios and at locations such as Central Park, Washington Square and Madison Avenue. On August 3, 1955, Jeanette aced her final screen test for Columbia. She was signed to a seven-year contract at $175 US a week, which is about $1,700 US today. And if she stuck with the studio for the full term, she'd end up on a sweet $1,000 a week. But Columbia's new Aussie starlet's birth name had to go. So, as was common practice then, they renamed Jeanette Elphick as Victoria Shaw, which was thought to be sexier and more sophisticated for a movie marquee. Newly christened Victoria was then rushed to New York City to play the important supporting role of Eddie Duchin's second wife, Chiquita, whose emotional scenes helped to carry the second half of the film. Of course, her instant success was big news back home. On the 9th of August, Melbourne's The Argus reported, quote, The lifetime ambition of glamorous girls all over the world has been realised by beautiful Australian model Jeanette Elphick. Perth's Mirror newspaper put it better, though, by calling it, quote, The hottest Cinderella story in a long time. The very first scene that Victoria filmed for the Eddie Duchin story was the one where Chiquita learns that Eddie is terminally ill and then proposes marriage to him nevertheless. It's one of the most tear-jerking moments in what is a three-hanky weepy. Adding to the anxiety of making her Hollywood debut in a wrenching love scene opposite veteran heartthrob Tyrone Power, Victoria had to do it at a city riverside location and in front of thousands of New Yorkers who'd turned out to see a big movie being made. She later recalled, quote, Tyrone put me at ease by telling me how nervous he was on his first day and how the leading lady put him at ease by telling of her first day and how the leading man dispelled her fears by telling her and so it went. The story made Victoria laugh and her nerves eased when, quote, I saw that I wasn't the only one who took 20 takes to do a scene, 
Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. When she wasn't on set, Victoria enjoyed going to Hollywood functions, though she found it hard not to be starstruck when she was, say, introduced to Joe DiMaggio, suddenly found herself sharing a powder room with Janet Lee, or being made into a gal pal at a party by Eva and Zsa Zsa Gabor. But life away from the Hollywood scene was a bit lonely, with Victoria finding it difficult to connect with American men and women whose ways and attitudes she found a little bewildering. While filming the Eddie Duchin story, Victoria had to do press to promote herself as a star and she faced a press junket in New York attended by half a dozen Hollywood hacks. It was here that Guy Austin, longtime movie reporter, got the first major Australian interview with the newly christened Victoria, which ran in Perth's Mirror newspaper in September. The headline... She does the impossible, girl in a million. Quote, The odds against any American girl who arrives in Hollywood for screen fame are many thousands to one. The odds against an Australian unknown are even greater. But Victoria, as she must now be known, made it. In the interview, Victoria said all the right things, was bright and charming, told how New York was like Sydney, quote, only taller, and that she loved the Empire State Building, handsome cabs in Central Park, and popsicles, which she'd never seen before. As a fish out of water, she was also expected to comment on the differences between Australia and America. She said she liked California, but hated Bermuda shorts with high socks. Quote, Men's knees are not their good points, and I think they look awful. Similarly, she was bemused by New Yorkers ordering moose juice, which was half milk and half Coca-Cola. Guy Austin concluded his article this way. Quote, She is not the slightest affected by her sudden break and sudden fame. She is poised and charming. She is the girl who has got everything. By the end of 1955, that included a man. With filming finished on the Eddie Duchin story, Columbia enrolled Victoria in an acting school and on her first day, she met another recently signed youngster, Roger Smith. This handsome 22-year-old had a big break story, a little bit like Victoria's. While he'd been born in California and taken drama classes as a child, his family had moved away from Tinseltown to Arizona when he was 12, and from then on he'd been more interested in sports and playing guitar. 
After school, he joined the Navy and in 1954, while serving in Hawaii, Rogers' musical skills were noticed by none other than Jimmy Cagney doing a movie there. Cagney told the handsome and talented youngster to head to Hollywood when his time as a sailor was up. Roger did that and wound up signed to Columbia. At the studio's drama school, Victoria and Roger had to play From Here to Eternity's famous beach love scene. She recalled, quote, Roger said I was too stiff and proper in the scene and sarcastically suggested that we drive to the beach and rehearse with the waves. I agreed. His bluff called, Roger was speechless, though he soon found enough of a voice to ask Victoria out on a date and he took her to, of all places, the Magic Kingdom. Victoria recalled that Roger, quote, decanted me in Disneyland. It's impossible to be prim roaring on the moon rocket or Peter Pan's pirate ship. By November 1955, syndicated entertainment columns were reporting their romance. Such gossip items were a dime a dozen in a thousand daily newspapers, and usually they were manufactured and or massaged by studio publicity departments. But Victoria and Roger were the real deal. In February 1956, in recognition of her stellar debut in still-to-be-released The Eddie Duchin Story, and no doubt thanks to the lobbying of Columbia, Victoria Shaw won the Golden Globe for New Star of the Year actress in a three-way tie with Anita Ekberg and Dana Winter. Three months later, on her 21st birthday, Roger proposed and she accepted. The following month, Victoria was back in New York City for the premiere of the Eddie Duchin story at Radio City Music Hall. The film was a critical and commercial hit and her performance, rightly, was praised as an impressive debut. As Shakita, she was fiery, sensitive, passionate and tragic. For Victoria, the movie's release was a magical moment. Her name was up in lights on marquees everywhere, right next to Tyrone Power and Kim Novak. Quote, I didn't know I was to get that kind of billing, and when I saw it on my way home from a theatre, I was so thrilled I just had to drive round and round the block looking at it. Doing press for the film, Victoria was profiled by the Los Angeles Times in a fairly lengthy article explaining how she kept herself calm through meditation with such practices then thought of as far out. And she needed to keep calm after she made some comically disparaging remarks about Australia when a columnist asked what American men going down under for the 1956 Olympics needed to know about the place. Her comments, in which she dissed Melbourne's weather, the six o'clock closing laws and the quality of the coffee, were mild, but they stoked a brief backlash back home. Everyone got over it soon enough and by July 1956, Australian newspapers and magazines brought readers the happy news that Victoria and Roger had gotten married, 
with the Australian Women's Weekly running a beautiful full-page colour photo of the newlyweds. Six months later, in January 1957, Victoria, with her handsome new husband in tow, made a triumphant return to Australia to promote the Eddie Duchin story. She had more good news too. She was expecting her first baby. Returning to Hollywood, Victoria's pregnancy put her career on hold, but now Roger was in demand after Jimmy Cagney had personally requested him for a supporting role in the Lon Chaney biopic Man of a Thousand Faces. In July 1957, Victoria gave birth to baby daughter Tracy. Within a few months, she was ready to go back to work and she was cast in The Notorious Landlady, a big Columbia picture that was then set to co-star Jack Lemmon. But Victoria had to drop out when she discovered she was pregnant again and she gave birth to son Jordan in October 1958. By now, Roger's star was really rising thanks to a strong role in that year's smash hit, Auntie Mame. That year also saw him score the part that made him really famous, as Jeff in hip private detective TV show, 77 Sunset Strip. Even though she had two young children to look after, Victoria made her long-awaited return to acting in 1958 and made four films back-to-back. First to be released in 1959 was The Crimson Kimono. Directed by now-cult filmmaker Samuel Fuller, this was an edgy noir about two detective best friends, one your typical Caucasian hero, the other a sensitive Japanese-American who both fall for the same woman while investigating a stripper's murder. While Victoria, who plays an artist, didn't have much to do in the first half, she was good in the second half as the movie became more about racism than crime. The Crimson Kimono was also the first mainstream movie in the sound era to show a romance between a Caucasian woman and an Asian man in positive terms, with the Japanese-American character played by James Shigeta getting the girl and sealing the deal in a passionate kiss with Victoria before the end credits. Victoria's other 1959 film, Edge of Eternity, from Invasion of the Body Snatchers director Don Siegel, who'd go on to make Dirty Harry, was a very enjoyable thriller and enlivened by its cinemascope photography of The Grand Canyon. Victoria was terrific as a smart, sexy helpmate to Cornell Wilde's Desert Cop investigating a series of murders. I haven't seen 1960's I Aim for the Stars, in which she played the wife of Nazi rocket scientist Werner von Braun, but it was well-received critically back in the day. And 1960's high school drama, Because They're Young, which marked Dick Clark's movie debut, was also popular. 
With four recent films, an appearance modelling the work of a Best Costume nominee at the 1959 Oscars and a high media profile thanks to her and Roger regularly being depicted as the perfect Hollywood couple in magazines like Photoplay and Screenland, it seemed that Victoria Shaw was back on track in show business as a rising star. But life had other plans. In mid-1959, Roger was carrying a hi-fi system in their house when he fell and hit his head. It seemed like a minor incident, but over the next two weeks, he suffered increasingly horrible symptoms, ranging from delirium to agonizing head pains. Victoria took him to doctor after doctor, five in all, and each doctor misdiagnosed him. Finally, with Roger suffering paralysis, Victoria found a doctor who discovered the real problem. Her husband had a massive blood clot in his brain that was about to kill him. Roger underwent emergency surgery to drain five ounces of blood from his brain, and for a few days it was touch and go. But with Victoria's patient care, he recovered, regained weight, and returned to 77 Sunset Strip, which had been shooting around him for a few months. In October 1960, Victoria had her next movie for Columbia as the heroine of director William Castle's psycho cash-in, Homicidal. But Victoria didn't want to do this trashy movie, and Hollywood gossip columnist Luella Parsons' report of her displeasure made newspapers all over America. The studio backed down and gave the role to a newcomer called Patricia Breslin. When Victoria did act again that year, it was to play an Australian woman opposite her husband in a 77 Sunset Strip episode that he'd written. By the time Homicidal was in cinemas, a box office hit on its way to becoming a cult classic, Victoria was pregnant with her third child, and son Dallas was born in December 1961. While they had so recently and so regularly been promoted as a perfect couple, Victoria and Roger's marriage was now crumbling. He, she said, ignored her and the children. Things got tougher for Roger when, after five successful seasons, 77 Sunset Strip let go of all its cast with the exception of Ephraim Zimbalus Jr., out of a job, Roger took his singing and musical skills to famous San Francisco hipster club, The Hungry Eye. His show was a surprising success, but his absence further strained the marriage, with his and Victoria's marital problems charted in Hedda Hopper's gossip columns. What was also public knowledge was that Roger was having an affair with newly minted superstar Anne Margaret, fresh from hits Bye Bye Birdie and Viva Las Vegas. In February 1965, Victoria and Roger divorced, with her getting their fairly modest house in Encino, $1,750 a month in alimony, and custody of the three children. Side note, still suffering health problems, Roger soon after retired from acting to manage Anne-Margaret. 
He'd marry her in 1967 and they'd stay a couple for the next 50 years until his death in 2017. By the time Victoria Shaw turned 30 on May the 25th, 1965, her star was fading. But her name still meant something and she got regular guest spots in TV shows like The Man from Uncle and Ironside. In 1966, Victoria got a solid supporting role opposite William Holden and Richard Widmark in Civil War drama Alvarez Kelly, even though her Southern Belle accent didn't quite work. That same year, she married a second time to a TV producer named Elliot Alexander. Their union lasted less than three years, with her seeking a divorce in 1969 because he spent all of his time focused on his horse breeding business. By 1970, Victoria had had enough, so she said goodbye to Hollywood and took her three children to live in Sydney. That didn't last, and six months later, they were back in Los Angeles. In 1972, Roger, now five years into his marriage to Anne Margaret and doing well thanks to her superstardom, successfully sued for custody of his children with Victoria. This was a bitter wrangle, though Victoria would, over time, reach detente with Roger and even have good things to say about Anne Margaret as stepmother to the kids. In 1973, Victoria received high billing as the medieval queen robot in Westworld, even though it was a pretty small part. While on set, she practiced yoga. Then referred to as a cult, it had such novelty value that she found herself the subject of a Los Angeles Times article. It was a strange echo of that piece from nearly 20 years ago about her meditating on the set of her first American movie. And as it turned out, Westworld would be Victoria's last film. Small screen work did keep coming and the following year she landed a regular role on soapy General Hospital. When that ended after 18 months, it was back to guest roles, her earnings now supplemented by money from her side career as a professional astrologer. Victoria returned to Australia in 1976 to make an episode of American TV hit McLeod that was set in Sydney. While here, she was a guest on This Is Your Life when it honoured her old mentor, June Daly Watkins. Returning to Hollywood, there wasn't much work now, and in 1978, soon after a good bitchy guest role in an episode of Charlie's Angels, Victoria Shaw's phone stopped ringing. In an interview later that year with the Australian Women's Weekly, she explained that she had a new career now, or at least was hoping to, writing screenplays and film treatments, and according to her own horoscope, she was going to see success with this in the coming year. If Victoria did sell any of her scripts, they weren't put into production. To get by in the 1980s, she managed an apartment block. A long-time smoker, she'd by now developed respiratory problems, with these exacerbated by Los Angeles smog. In 1985, with her health failing, Victoria returned to Australia 
initially staying with her sister at Taree. Moving back to Sydney, she got back in touch with her old friend, June Daly Watkins, who she hadn't seen since that This Is Your Life taping a decade earlier. In her autobiography, June Daly Watkins wrote that she was shocked by how Victoria looked. Quote, It was heartbreaking to see the transformation that had taken place. She had grown thin, her eyes stared out from deep sockets and her cheekbones protruded through tightly drawn skin. According to June, Victoria, even now, didn't give up smoking. As her health deteriorated, though, she maintained good spirits through her Catholic beliefs, which she somehow integrated with her all-consuming passion for astrology. Victoria and June Daly Watkins resumed their friendship easily and had a great time together on Australia Day Eve in 1988 when they camped out to ensure a good view of the bicentennial celebrations on Sydney Harbour. There they were, roughing it, the doyen of deportment and the 1950s movie star. June had no problem going to sleep, leaving Victoria awake and thinking about how funny this scene was. In her autobiography, June quoted from Victoria's own written description of this night. Quote, What strange and karmic events lead us along the circuitous path called life? Victoria was vastly amused that ever-so-elegant June snored so loudly beside her. Quote, To this melody, I finally fell asleep under the stars of the Southern Cross. Eight months later, Victoria was telling the Sydney Morning Herald's columnist about how she hadn't been recognised in Grace Brothers and how she was writing that book about serial killers and their star signs. The article appeared in print on the 7th of August 1988. Ten days later, Victoria Shaw died of emphysema in Hornsby Hospital at the age of 53. When her funeral was held, two days later, family and friends all remembered her as Jeanette Elphick, and that's how her friend June Daly Watkins remembered her too, writing, quote, Of all the young models I have met, worked with and personally groomed in more than half a century, Jeanette Elphick remains probably the most beautiful, and among the most tragic. I'm Michael Adams, and you've been listening to Forgotten Australia Side Note. If you've enjoyed this show and you'd like to take a really deep dive into how Hollywood stardom went wrong for another young Australian actress, check out my book, Australia's Sweetheart, about our forgotten movie star, Mary Maguire. For more information about that book and this and other Forgotten Australia episodes, go to ForgottenAustralia.com or the Facebook page, Forgotten Oz Podcast. And if you've got a moment, give Forgotten Australia a review on iTunes because it really helps other people find the show. 
Forgotten Australia was written and produced by me in the Blue Mountains of New South Wales on land traditionally owned by the Darug and Gundungurra people. As always, thanks for listening. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com.